since we're gathered here together as a community around the subject of equi equanimity and awareness, this is what I'd like to speak about uh, today. The name of this talk is Seeing the World with Quiet Eyes. And I got the title of this talk from the Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman. He was an African-American minister of the Church of the Fellowship for All Peoples in San Francisco, which he co-founded in 1944. He was a friend of the family of the Reverend uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and really counseled him during his times of ministry, especially during difficult times. So I want to attribute uh, this quote to him, of course. It's from his meditation entitled, Deep is the Hunger, a collection of his writings. How may we work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world without despair and complete fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with its vicissitudes of cruelty and joys, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit? So that's the, um, the basis of my, my offering to you today so that it can incline our hearts, our minds, and our lives in the direction of seeing the world with quiet eyes. It's an interesting um, a way to put it. It helps me feel subjectively what equanimity feels like. What does it feel like when we can have equanimity accompanying our awareness uh, of the outer environment, of the outer experiences of life, as well as the inner experiences in our hearts, in our minds, that are always responding or sometimes reacting to how life is. We'll often experience equanimity as an inner calm, an inner quiet, but it's much more than that. It's much more than a settled downness and calmness. It's a sense of not being reactive to what's going on in the world. And then when we realize what's going on in our own hearts, when we bring our attention there, we can either, even refrain from reacting towards that. So it's, it's the ability of the mind to stay steady and clear and calm, even through all the vicissitudes of life, whatever they are outwardly, what in, in our environment, in our life, in the world, and whatever they are inwardly. So it's not just calm and quietness, non-reactivity, it's also spaciousness. So I'd like to really give that sense to you to try to experience in your time here together with all of us so that we can sense that equanimity makes room for things to exist. Because oftentimes we're fighting the existence of life, of how things are. 
instead of um, taking time to be patient, taking time for allowing, taking time for widening the mind so that we can say, this too exists in the world, this too exists in my heart, and actually be real with how things are. So this spacious wide view of experience is in addition to the calming factor of equanimity. When we have this wide view, we can feel a sense of um, unbiased understanding of how things are. Because when it's that way, there's a lessening of aversion to how things are. There's also a lessening of attachment to how we think things should be. So these two, attachment and aversion, are the direct opposites of equanimity. They're called the far enemy of equanimity. So in this particular Brahma Vihara, this divine abode, uh, there are two uh, direct opposites, both attachment and aversion. And these two are major causes, of course, for our suffering in the world. When attachment and aversion are not present and there is equanimity there, there's a clear and wise view of the entire situation. So we can see with equanimity and uh, present and being able to have a wider view, it allows our intelligence, our inner intelligence and wisdom to know what's going on here really and all the levels and all the various uh, angles so that we can respond to life. So I wanna make it clear right now that equanimity is not just about staying still and doing nothing at all. It means having the calmness, the balance, and the spacious of mind, spaciousness of mind to be able to actually take in, to allow, to see what's going on around us, and within us so that we can act with intelligence, wisdom, compassion, caring, and be really helpful. Otherwise, we're just caught in seeing life through attachment or aversion because we're not allowing that to be known. <clears throat> so for this reason, equanimity is such an important subject to reflect upon especially these days, these times we live in, when the accessibility and the proliferation of so many viewpoints and opinions are in the news. And then we have our own to grapple with, right? Which is <laughs> the hardest part in my view, my experience. And then there is a speed of information and there can, that information is continuously coming to us from all sides, except perhaps when we can take some rest from our devices and um, the news even coming from people around us. We're oftentimes triggered into reactivity, anger of how it is, self-righteousness, our own viewpoints that we hold tightly to, 
There's blame, helplessness, and confusion, all of these places of suffering when there's an absence of that spacious, balanced, settledness of the mind, which is equanimity. And of course, I just want to recognize that we're all human. Strong emotions do rise up within us. Um, I love this phrase that Manindra always came back to me at the right time when he said, my path is not yet finished. My path is not yet finished. So we all have vestiges and sometimes big time experience of, experience of those in our hearts. So I just want to point out that you will notice that I'm talking about equanimity in relationship to two levels of life the outer level, equanimity towards what's happening outwardly all around us in our communities and the uh, greater world about the environment, about um, structural uh, racism and uh, the injustices that go on all over the world. But also the emotions that rise up within us as another level of suffering. So when we react to the outer world, of course, there's a level of suffering. Then when we don't even see what's going on and the inner level, there's suffering there too. That's why awareness is so important, to be aware of what's happening within us, more important in a way than what's happening around us, more important in the sense that we need to put more energy there because oftentimes in reactivity, we're so pulled out to the world and what's happening there that we don't have the wherewithal sometimes unless we're highly and repeatedly training ourselves to look inwardly at the same time. So when emotions rise up within us, we have this incredible opportunity to develop equanimity there as well. So equanimity to the outer circumstances and equanimity to the inner conditions that rise up in relationship to our life. The thing is that we get so busy trying to do something about life and trying to rectify it, or of course, we're all good people, we're all responsible human beings, and we want to do our part in our communities and in our families to do good, to help. Um, but oftentimes, it's so much um, at the reactivity part where we look first to what we can do instead of looking first to what's going on inside ourselves so that we know what we're working with when we're doing our uh, helpful action in the world. This is what's greatly needed. We need to be responsible enough to look at our own minds and hearts. And this is the whole practice of awareness that each one of us are doing in different ways in our lives. So we need to bring the training of awareness there, which is why the, the subject of our uh, time here together is equanimity and awareness. So reactivity, this is the opposite of equanimity. This is called the far enemy of equanimity. 
this reactivity within us adds to the disharmony and hurt in the world. Even if we're not saying so or acting out our reactivity in our speech, in our behavior, it's there. You know, it's vibrationally there. And that vibration is still in the world. So we as meditators are working on different levels. We're working even on, if I can use that word, this vibrational, it's, um, you know, a, a subtle experience, a subtle thing that's happening. But that is still really important in the world. I mean, I can sense in myself when I'm with a person and there's some conversation and we're kind of like at opposite ends of the um, subject matter. One of my friends may feel one thing about a certain subject matter and I may feel the opposite of it. Even if I have the wherewithal to know, oh, there's some aversion in my own mind about what this person is saying. And then I realize both the aversion to that, what the person is saying and the aversion that's going on in my own heart, there is sometimes another level of aversion to that. That is a strong vibration. Sometimes I'm sensing that I can feel that in another person, but I also can sense very clearly that that's a strong vibration in my own heart. And that makes it, it makes a difference when I feel that aversion in a high way, or when I'm feeling just equanimous about how it is, like there are times when it's possible with the practice of awareness and equanimity. When I'm in this situation with another person, I have the spaciousness of mind, which is equanimity, to say there are different opinions in this world. This is I can acknowledge your opinion and how you feel about it because of so many unknowable conditions in your life and your past and the conditions in my life, which bring me to these particular ways that I see life. Now that's a long way of saying it and realizing that, but in a moment, if we're really wise, all of that can come to us with a sense of equanimity. And so there's this settledness. There's this place where the person feels my own sense of spaciousness, my own sense of non-hatred towards this person, non-aversion towards this person. And there can be some sense of coming together and the harmony of knowing that this is the way it is in the world. There are many ways to see this. And so... I feel that I can do that um, over and over again more, um, more steadily. And sometimes I have to work with it depending upon what the subject matter is. And sometimes it doesn't take a lot of work. You know, I just notice by working with it, by the training of the mind, um, that when it's hard, when I notice the mind is reacting, to actually be honest, you know, and notice there's reactivity here. Let's be careful. There's reactivity in my own heart. So um, 
just recently, just to be um, specific about it, I was talking to a friend that um, uh, a dear friend and also somebody who comes to help uh, me here on, on the land sometimes. So I'm very grateful to this person. And we are at opposite ends of the spectrum about being vaccinated. And so having, I had some practice in um, having this conversation with this person. Because at first, my conversation with this person was very inwardly reactive. And um, I could notice at first my reactivity to that person's stance. So that's what I noticed in the, in the first conversation. And I could work on knowing that this is the way it is for you right now. And that's in that first conversation what I could realize at that time. This is how it is for you. And I had to have an equanimity phrase to help me along. And that's what it was. This is how it is for you right now. I have to be careful about that right now part because I don't want that to mean, but I'm going to change your mind. You know, <laughs> it just means this is how it is for you right now. And of course, you know, our opinions, our judgments, our feelings always change. So in that moment, I wasn't using right now. It was, this is how it is for you. And so it helped me to develop equanimity around how that person is. That, that's the outer experience. But I knew that there was this inner environment that was really bugging me too. And even more so, and that was my own reactivity to that. Like, I'm right, you're wrong. Or, you know, um, that's just that attachment to how I feel. So in the second conversation, or it was actually, to be honest, second or third conversation, I had to work on that part of it. Like to see, this is how it is for me right now. And just make room for that too. And when I use a phrase that helps me incline the mind there, I'm reminding myself. It's like I'm giving myself this direction. This is how it is right now in my own mind. Let that person have their own. That's the way it is for them. Worked on that enough already. Could be more, but enough already. And now it's this. This is how it is for me right now. Making room for that, the truth of that, how it is. And so in time, maybe on the third uh, time being with this person and probably more, you know, we have this um, conversation. It comes up briefly sometimes. Sometimes it's more like in depth. Um, then I can really say, I can make space for both of these to exist in the world and for my own reactivity to exist. This is how it is. Just resting in that moment of non-reactivity, even when it's just a few moments, is a great harmony that we have with one another and harmony that I have with my own karmic stream <laughs> because I don't want that uh, activity of aversion to something else, 
aversion to my own reactivity, attachment to how I think it should be. I'm really not feeling that that's very wise for that to kind of over and over again be fed into my karmic stream by not being aware of it. It's continually fed into my karmic stream. So um, this is our good fortune to be able to understand these practices and to do them with wisdom and also with the compassion of knowing we're not hurting anybody by our reactivity and we're not hurting our own karmic stream as well. So when we have conditions like this, this good fortune to slow down and to get help, to get support by having a Sangha community around us doing the same thing, by having some guidance by other parts of the Sangha like Stephen, myself, that we can slow down and really feel what's happening. Um, not just calm the mind, which is kind of like, um, it's not as deep. Calming the mind is not as deep as equanimity. Concentration, calming can really help, of course. It can keep the um, defilements kind of out there. We don't feel them as much, but they're still there. What equanimity does is so much more powerful. It can allow those defilements to be known, but not react to them. So that is the power of equanimity. These defilements can come up and be known, and we can bring our practice of equanimity right there. We're not insisting that we just pay attention to one thing so that it can become, our minds can become concentrated on that, leave everything else aside, or can be calm because we're just per, uh, attending to one or just limited things. But we're able, with that calm and concentration, which is necessary, we're able to open to whatever is going on. And that opening takes equanimity. That opening of awareness to whatever is going on takes equanimity. That's why equanimity is a seventh factor of enlightenment. It's much stronger than calm and concentration. So when we open to equanimity on this deep level of practice, and so equanimity is so important in deepening levels of practice, not just in the world, of course, it's so powerful there, but on deepening levels of practice, we need this equanimity to be able to open to all that arises in our minds and hearts. And a lot of it is defilements, difficulties. We're able to see and to um, make room for those to be there, not just push them away with them, um, which is what we do, you know, with concentration, we let them be to the side. But with equanimity, they're allowed to be there. And then we bring awareness with equanimity to that moment to see things as they are. This is a very important aspect and watershed moment when we're able to go there in our practice and not just to insist that it be calm or, you know, just to be with the pleasantness of that. 
of that calmness um, and concentration. But to see a moment of aversion or attachment or any way that it manifests and say, this is the way it is. And for the mind to go calm with that, not just calm, but to be equanimous with that. Why? Because there's no further reactivity to it. There may be in the beginning, but when we bring equanimity to the foreground and as a as a help to awareness, then it's not reacting. It's not bringing any further defilements to the space of the mind. This is why it's called the doorway to Nibbana, the doorway to peace. And we, we get there in our practice at many levels. You know, there's, um, there is known to be immature levels of equanimity arising. This is when we're just practicing it. And then there's mature levels of equanimity arising in the whole unfolding process. So we're allowing ourselves to practice in this way, to know life more deeply. Earlier uh, today, Steve was speaking about why we bring ourselves, why we allow ourselves to go to the practice of feeling what we feel in the arising of what's happening in the body, for example. This is called, um, you know, the connecting and sustaining to the um, sabhava. What's the translation of sabhava, Steve? Uh, The unique characteristics of one moment. And so when we bring our uh, connection, connecting and sustaining to that one moment of actually feeling what it feels in the rising moment, we're starting to notice the changing experiences there. So we're practicing first on the body, right? On experiences of the body, the changing sensations there. And then in the practice, uh, later on today or tomorrow, we will shift you to the changing sensations or experiences that go on in the mind. And those will include all of the defilements, of course. So what we're turning the mind to is not just staying calm and concentrated, but also turning the mind to see the various characteristics that are underneath this con- these concepts of life, even the concept of self. So all of that may, may come together. I know the kind of going ahead of myself a little bit, but... Um, all of that is is about going deeper and deeper into the practice. We're developing by turning the mind to the various sensations and then in our practice of, of the body, and then we'll turn the mind to the various experiences of the mind itself and to really notice the changing nature of that. That's what equanimity allows us to do. It's to be able to face whatever there is to be faced. This is how it is right now in, say, facing the defilements or the beautiful qualities of mind also, not hanging on to them, not pushing away the defilements, but just being steadily aware of what's going on. And then from there, it's really the, the point where the mind can jump to seeing just how impermanent everything is. So it's this gradual training that we're, we're in, in the practice. 
And we're not so being pulled out by, you know, the activity of the world. But we still are. So I'm going to go back to how it is with us in the world. Because this is, this is all what we're weaving together. How it is in the world and our reactivity and our non-reactivity or equanimity in relationship to that. And how it is in this inner world in our, and our activity, reactivity or non-reactivity there. So um, I love these writings by Thomas Merton. He's an American, he was an American Trappist monk in the tra Catholic tradition and a social activist, also a student of comparative religions. And he was very interested in the teachings of the Dharma and the Buddha. And uh, talks about this restfulness that we need, this relaxation that we need in life, in, in our practice and in life so that we can see and taste experience uh, more deeply. So I'm quoting him now saying, some of us need to discover that we will not begin to live uh, more fully until we have the courage to do and see and taste and experience it and experience less than usual. There are times when in order to keep ourselves in, ex in existence at all, we simply have to sit back for a while and do nothing. And for a person who has let themselves be drawn completely out of themselves by their activity, nothing is more difficult than to sit still and rest, doing nothing at all. The very act of resting is the hardest and most courageous act a person can perform. Now we wrote this in, in the 50s and 60s, and it's still true today that this, the pressure and the rush of life pulls us out so much, it's understandable that we can feel so vulnerable and agitated and depressed in our lives. So being here, taking time for a retreat such as this, it sort of uh, retreats us to that silence, to that stillness which is part of our lives. And we're not just here as human beings to experience that stillness and that restfulness in sleep, you know, when we're, when we're not so awake and knowing ourselves in that way, in, in this practice and um, training of meditation, we get to know ourselves in stillness and in quietness of the mind and being conscious there, not just in the eight hours of restfulness of sleep. So, you know, I often ponder on that, like, how am I using my, the fullness of my life? Like, it's not just kind of going to sleep and forgetting it all and having that needed rest, of course, but how can I rest, as uh, Thomas Merton says, in a way that's really conscious and alive? and looking at life in that way, in a, in a wise, compassionate way. How things are really happening in my heart in a conscious way, not just to, to rest from it, which I, I need and everybody needs. So with this rush and pressure of life, it's so understandable that we can feel vulnerable. And this is what we're doing consciously. 
we're consciously coming to the first noble truth of seeing the vulnerability of life. We can feel agitated, depressed. And these are all parts of the difficult states of mind that come up. How can we come close to those difficult states of mind without adding another level of suffering to them? The level of suffering which I, I uh, was hearing um, talked about earlier by Todd, uh, Todd is like just the ways we, um, we're not so nice to ourselves afterwards. Like I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be reacting this way to, but I did hear Todd say there was a moment of seeing, oh, this is just what the mind is doing. So there was some conscious awareness there. And I sensed, I'm not sure if it's true, but maybe Todd really knows that there was in that moment, there was some equanimity there in that very moment of knowing that. So there's that consciousness of being calm, aware, spacious, non-reactive to what's going on in our own hearts. If we're not practicing there, we're really not doing the fullness of the practice. Where if we're just learning it about the outer world, in order to be complete, we've got to do it with this inner world. Because that, knowing that, you know, when we have the wherewithal, which is the power of equanimity to knowing what's going on in the inner world, we have the agency then to know, we have the intelligence, the Dharma intelligence, the spiritual intelligence to know what is going on here is harmful if I let it come out in my speech and my actions, this is wisdom to know what's harmful and know what's harmonious. But when we know what's harmful, we say, I'm going to refrain from acting and speaking now because what I might say would cause disharmony. It wouldn't be wise. Maybe sometimes this is not leaving out that sometimes we need to speak loudly and strongly many times. And we can do that without anger. Sometimes I must admit the anger comes into the picture, even though we intend it not to. And sometimes we do speak with anger and sometimes it can make a difference. But um, what the Buddha was speaking about is that we can be loud and clear and repetitive and um, resourceful in saying and doing things that make a difference in this world without anger. And sometimes maybe speaking loud is uh, perceived as anger, but I have spoken loud many times. And as far as I know, you know, there's no anger there. If it is, it's still hidden from my view. Anyway, we start to understand this vulnerability of all of life when we're really truthful with how it is inside. We really understand the first noble truth. And if we're practicing well, we start to see the cause of it, our attachment to how we think it should be, or the other side of the coin of that is our aversion to how it is. 
And then we start working with knowing that more and more. We see the cause and then we bring mindfulness to even to that place. And there can be moments when we feel deeply at ease with how it is. It's just moments of liberation when we're not fighting how it is in our hearts or out there, but the mind is restful enough to gather some energy and wisdom and compassion than to know what to do in life. So the Buddha spoke of these eight worldly conditions, spoke about them last night. I spoke about them last night also. These four pairs of vicissitudes that the Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman was speaking of, all these ups and downs of life, and I want to acknowledge them because this is how it is uh, as a human being to experience praise and blame, to experience gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. So we're constantly experiencing these, this flux of life. But where is a possibility where, can we, where we can land? Either sometimes it feels in the middle of that, um, or we can feel not so identified with that. When we're feeling equanimity, sometimes it feels like we're standing in the middle. That's one um, that's one description of equanimity, standing in the middle. It means that also it infers to mean that we can see both sides. It's a spaciousness of being able to see both sides of what's going on. And not only that, there's this ability to say both sides exist. Like the Buddha was saying, these are the eight worldly conditions. And inferred in that is, can we accept how it is? Can we accept this first noble truth? These are the sufferings of the world. And this is how it is. It brings about this vulnerability. It brings about the vulnerability when there is no awareness of them. When there is awareness of them, there is a chance that we can incline the mind towards equanimity, or it might already be there, or we can incline the mind towards metta, or um, towards just understanding, towards that deep understanding that equanimity brings, which I mentioned earlier of, this will pass. And maybe in the meantime, we might have to do something about it before it actually passes. <laughs> and what we put into it might help the whole worldly situation, hopefully, if we're thinking clearly and we're acting uh, helpfully, and we want to do that. And maybe it won't, but we're still going to take our action and our speech and to do that in the best way possible or refrain from doing that. So it doesn't mean we're not taking action and we're just saying this is the way it is. It means that we may take action if it's the right action. So gain and loss, you know, when we gain things, we like it and we lose things, we don't like it. Can we be aware of that and just notice again? Yeah, this is the way it is in the world and in our life right now. 
pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. We just see that with them, with beautiful people, you know, that, that we love, that we admire. And even with um, people that we feel are quite noble people, you know, just, just to sometimes when I think of fame and disrepute, um, I'm very fond of um, uh, our president Obama. And when I hear anything said against him, you know, I, it, it just rankles me. So I see that happening and notice that's how it is in the world. There is uh, fame and disrepute, even no matter who it is. And this is how it is in my heart. It feels terrible, but I'm with equanimity there. At least I try to be as much as possible. So this teaching and practice of equanimity is supporting us so we don't get bogged down in the vicissitudes. We can find ourselves kind of resting in the middle of things. Or maybe, you know, we're in a way of seeing the, seeing the universality of these three con, uh, universal conditions of life that it's just the way it is. It's all impermanent. And we just see the selfless nature of it, the empty nature of it. Sometimes some of us can go there and it gives some rest to the mind. But again, that doesn't stop us from taking action as citizens of the world. We can take action and know both are true, that it's selfless and there's that the sense of self that needs to do something about things in this world. So there's external level, there's the internal level and our lives as human beings works on both levels and in our training to see how it is. Sometimes when I hear, um, we often hear this analogy of the, the first arrow, the second arrow, and I see that this is what it can pertain to. Sometimes this first arrow, which is a first painful experience that we may have when we feel the suffering, and then the second arrow, the second painful experience when we go to our inner experience. So, uh, outer experience, the conditions of the world. We open the news in the morning and some of the first things that jump out to us are just another shooting that's happening someplace in the world or another way that there is some social injustice um, and it's very painful for me and for many of you, all of you, of course. So that's the first arrow, it's painful. There is dukkha, there is pain in this world. And we feel the pain of another sometimes so personally, of course. And that's the second arrow when we feel the aversion to the fact that it is that way, when we're not in, in awareness of that aversion inside or of the attachment to our, or our self-righteousness of this is the way it has to be. When we feel that second arrow, how is that? Can we bring awareness and equanimity to that moment? A friend of mine <clears throat> told me that when she became more aware of paying attention, awareness, and then 
bringing with it more equanimity to the second arrow as well as to the first arrow. She um, told me that she actually, in reality, she felt more assaulted by that second arrow than the first arrow, that that second arrow was keeping her uh, a lot from doing the right thing or from refraining from doing the right, the wrong thing. So equanimity implies balance, but it also implies spaciousness to have the space to stand in the middle of things so that you can see both sides or to, to stand in a way where you can see it from afar and to see in a, a, a way of the universal understanding of life just momentarily to help one rest the mind. This is the way it is in samsara in this world. You know, all these things that are happening that will come and go, come and go, come and go. So we're learning how to balance being like a rock or a boulder sometimes, just really taking our stance in, in the right way of balance and knowing what to say from that stance of wisdom and compassion and love well-grounded, rock-steady, but sometimes there's a sky, and maybe you need to combine both sometimes to see the spaciousness of all things existing in this world. As a Buddha said, develop a mind that is vast like space, where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, slick, conflict struggle, or harm. Rest in a mind that is vast like the sky. So to really survive and thrive as a human being, we have to have a big enough space in our hearts and our minds to make room for the reality that presents itself and to know also how to navigate that in challenging times. That's skillful means. And they're, they're both important and sometimes we learn things like a Dharma way to handle these, which includes the right action way, um, which sometimes other modalities have more details around that, which I really appreciate. So this quote from Don Juan to Carlos Castaneda, uh, also true. The art of being a spiritual warrior is to balance the terror of being human with the wonder of being human. The wonder is our capacity for transformation. Those are my words. This wonder of being human is our capacity for transformation. That's how I interpret that. that. So there can be this spaciousness, of course, that the Buddha talks about, like the sky, or like being a spiritual warrior, just knowing this balance that we have to know. We know this side, we know that side, and we take it in with a clear, sobering honesty that this is, this is a stance that people take. This is how it is. And the wonder of being human is that through taking that all in, there can be some transformation in our own hearts. Sometimes we learn compassion 
by learning from, you know, people who speak differently than us. Sometimes we learn something new that, oh, I never understood that part. I never understood how you really felt about that. You know, there's, so there's so much that can be opened up in our hearts. So <clears throat> a very clear space to see things as they are, the truth of the moment or the situation. And from seeing things as they are, we can know and face it squarely with clear assessment and understanding from there. So bringing equanimity to all places, to all levels, is a cause for clarity, is a cause for wisdom, is a cause for compassion to arise. So then we take the most skillful action, or we say the most skillful thing, sometimes in a loud voice, sometimes repetitively. Sometimes we know better when not to say something, and we take time to think about it before we say it not to do anything yet, but to do it at a time when we feel the strongest. And the strongest means wisdom and compassion together. We often forget that this is an option that we can refrain from doing or saying something. And maybe it makes complete sense, of course, to take time before we do something or say something. I love the way His Holiness the Dalai Lama talks about this. This refraining is an inner disarmament. You know, there are all those ways that they say this whole earth can be blown up by how many atomic bombs exist. Oh, I shudder to think about that. May it not be true, but maybe it is. But really, how can we disarm? This is the way we can disarm through equanimity, when we see that uh, reactivity coming up, can it be a moment of patience, of disarmament, of waiting, of pausing? So giving ourselves that those opportunities. So the direct opposite, the far enemy, which is called the far enemy of Equanimity means you can see it from afar because it's, it's bold, it's loud, it's a reactivity. It comes in two parts, which is aversion and attachment, mostly what I've been talking about in those two areas. But there's also what is called the near enemy. And um, the near enemy is the opposite also of equanimity. It's the near opposite. It has many manifestations but to notice that too, because sometimes I hear from um, some teachers in, in uh, the Tibetan tradition, I think it could even be from the Zen tradition, where the near enemy, which are these manifestations of indifference or apathy, passivity or complacency, it's called stupid equanimity. <laughs> it really isn't equanimity. It's just ignoring what's there. It's not really being connected to it. Indifference or apathy, passivity, complacency is not really connecting oneself to the experience. Sometimes I realize we need to be a part to catch our breath, 
to rest, to just not think about it for a while so we can gather up the energy to have more balance. That's wisdom. But sometimes, you know, we face something and we could use the words, I'm okay with this. I'm really okay with this, but it, in a nonchalant way. But actually, we're being indifferent or there's some passivity there. So we need to know the near enemy. It's called the near enemy also because it can feel like equanimity. So really explore, you know, in our practice. That's what our um, practice of uh, awareness is all about. So it's not resignation, but a clear recognition of what's going on. And then making, uh, letting ourselves see clearly. I wanna make these very wise um, points of um, ways that equanimity does have a trajectory. It's not just stop there. It's to see clearly in a balanced, spacious, calm, non-reactive way. You know, all those um, descriptions, balanced, calm, spacious, non-reactive. And the second step as we go through our sense of um, how do we respond, caring deeply, you know, really from that place, can we bring up a place of caring deeply for ourselves, caring deeply for others? And then acting is a third part, acting or speaking wisely. And that includes refraining from acting or speaking when it's unwise. So these are all the, the tenets of, um, of equanimity. And I, I wanted to give personal examples which aren't equanimous <laughs> and uh, just to acknowledge how, you know, we're human beings and we're not going to be that way all the time. But what we have in a beautiful, uh, grateful way for all of us is we have this training. It's not just hearing the words and saying, okay, got it. And, and then just kind of blah, blahing them out into the world uh, in our own inner Dharma talks or with others. But to actually practice equanimity is very challenging. And are we up to doing that if we're really on this path of liberation and training? So the Buddha would say that for one who develops deep abiding equanimity, it is a natural law to know and see things as they really are, to know the Dhamma. So that last line means also to be, to know the Dhamma as a place of liberation. So just wanna um, really use the last few minutes to come back to that um, point I made about acting in the world because it can often seem, and I know I'm making this point more than once or twice, it can often seem like equanimity 
means that we don't have any agency or we're not acting using our agency in the world. And of course, I hope I made several points that it does not mean that. I've gone through so many times of giving this talk and people ending up with feeling like, yeah, just saying this is the way it is, is not enough. Well, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we do have the wherewithal to have some agency in the world. And it's actually equanimity that gives us the opportunity to have wise agency in this world. So I actually wanna end this with talk with this, these words from Goethe. I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make a life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis will be escalated or de-escalated and a person humanized or dehumanized. So um, I will send those words uh, to Joanne and some other quotes and, and you'll have them. So um, you can rest your mind. You don't have to look around for them. So thank you so much for your kind attention. And I appreciate your giving me this opportunity to serve you and the Dharma and um, really appreciate all of you. So we're going on to the next place and I wanna give you a reminder. Um, you're gonna have time now for a break or uh, walking, might want a little tea break and can do all of that mindfully. And the walking meditation, it can continue. Um, it's, it's helpful to do a little bit of that, even if you can't do the a whole session of that. And the next session we're gonna have is the Q&A. And um, this will be sending your questions in to uh, Joanne. And I think she gave you her email address or I'm wondering maybe to do that by text. You can chime in. Um, is it by text or by to to your to your email address, right, Joanne? Um, if you want to write, it's probably the easiest to send to the retreats at tcbc.info. Yeah. You should all have the. Um, that's what we've been corresponding with. Oh, thanks. Uh, you can do text also, but yeah, either is okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Joanne, for clarifying. Sure. Um, and then Joanne will send that to us and hopefully um, anything that comes in within, uh, you know, the next half hour or so we'll try to respond to and we may not get to everything. And I just wanted to say um, to, for transparency's sake that um, this is a part that Steve um, loves to handle the the question and and I'll be chiming in too but mostly it, it's it's going to be Steve's uh, time to to give his words from his own heart his sharing the Dhamma and uh, and from all his years of practice and study and knowledge it turns out that the place of the tumor in the brain 
was a place of uh, reading and um, kind of deciphering what is being read and comprehension. And so now actually there's no tumor that is in that place because there's no vestige of, of a tumor now, but there's still, there's, there has been some radiation in that place. So it's hard for him sometimes to read his Dharma talks. So he's, his talks are gonna come straight from the heart to you. And um, he has that knowledge and it's really good for him to answer the questions and that, that's why it's helpful. Another thing that's helpful is if you just are really succinct as, as Joanne said in the beginning, um, not to give too much context or the you know, details, but to get to the point of your question. And so Steve can go there. So, um, and, and I'll be with him too in, in helping out. So thank you and time, time for the break and see you in an hour. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.